Welcome to episode 17 of Darnton Watch, a podcast designed to support researchers investigating book publishing, circulation and reading practices to share their talks and papers online. In this episode, Dr. Corinna Norik Ruhl, Chair of Book Studies at the University of Munster, gives a paper entitled Observations on Theorising and Modelling Mail-Order Book Culture. This paper considers different theoretical frameworks and their applicability to understanding the success story of publisher book clubs, as well as introducing the 4C model, which describes the benefits of and reasons for membership in book clubs across four categories. You can find a full abstract for this paper in the episode description. Copyright in all content on Danton Watch resides with the originating researcher. Hello, my name is Corinne-Henrik Ruhl. I am Professor of Book Studies at the University of Münster in Germany, and I'm delighted to share my work with you here through Darton Watch. Thank you to Millie Weber for this opportunity and the invitation. Um, I'm sharing this from lockdown number two in Germany, and I really relish the opportunity to engage in some sort of uh, research presentation, even as our world has become so small. So thanks again. What I'm presenting here is um, part of a sharp paper that I held at the 2019 conference in July at the University of Amherst, um, Massachusetts, in a panel on the business of books. And um, it's also part of my mini-graph which I published with Cambridge University Press in 2019. Um, And so I'll also be referencing that mini graph um, here and there in the text. In 1943, the cartoonist Helene Hawkinson, known for her anthropological eye for society and culture, published a vignette about the Book of the Month Club in New Yorker magazine. One of Hawkinson's famous ladies with her plump form small feet and friendly faces, says to her hometown librarian, I'm afraid this is goodbye, Miss MacDonald. I'm joining the Book of the Month Club. In this cartoon, a subscription to a book sales club relieves the reader of the need for recommendations from and conversations with the librarian, many of which were portrayed by Hawkinson over the years, and of the necessity to use library infrastructure. Instead, the reader now waits at home for a monthly delivery, looking forward to the missive from the book club, which will not only include a book, but also an extensive review by a member of the club's editorial board, an idea which the New York Times touted Harry Sherman's best soft sell idea. In a very ironic twist, this cartoon was used in Book of the Month Club ads once a year. In 1944, Hawkinson's protagonist from the 1943 cartoon is sitting on her couch, decked out in heels and pearls with a friend equally well-groomed. She's waited patiently for her book of the month to arrive. She's now opening her parcel. Anachronistically speaking, she's unboxing her book of the month. As she unboxes the book, she says, what I like about the book of the month club is the suspense. The cartoon is a standalone vignette, so we don't know, and we're left to wonder, does she like the suspense of not knowing which book will be sent to her? Or does she feel the books themselves are filled with suspense? Or is it a combination of the two, the anticipation and the reading pleasure? These two cartoons emphasize a number of issues surrounding book sales clubs, which make them so relevant to book and publishing historians, historians of reading and literature, and cultural sociologists. 
to name a few of the fields that can profit from a deeper understanding of the workings and intricacies of book sales clubs in the 20th and 21st centuries. Book sales clubs, also referred to as just book clubs or publisher book clubs, offer an interesting vantage point from which to observe the book trade. They're a well-established and long-standing distribution channel. They've evolved over time to adapt to different market requirements. And as institutions within the literary marketplace, they contribute to the negotiation of values and practices associated with reading. Their history of mergers, closures, restructuring, relaunches, etc., can help us understand the challenges the book industry has faced and is facing more generally. My mini-graph, titled Book Clubs and Book Commerce, offers a comprehensive analysis of the significance of book clubs in relation to the book industry, answering, I hope, <laughs> overarching questions about the structures, members, and appeal of the book club. The existing studies we have tend to focus on the local or national context. However, already in 1938, at a meeting of English Pen, participants discussed the effects of book clubs as, quote, a development which was not restricted by national boundaries, unquote. Their observations were very true. Book clubs are central to the global history of the book, not least through their significance for the foundation and spread of international media conglomerates. So if you think of Bertelsmann today or Holzbrink, for example. In my mini-graph, I argue that patterns in the history of book clubs are similar across national boundaries and markets, and I try to show how the book club business was intertwined internationally, mainly focusing on examples from the British, German, and U.S. book industries. And this choice was motivated um, by source availability and also by the fact that these three nations' book industries are consistently rated and ranked three of the most active and profitable book industries worldwide, at least for the 20th and into the 21st century. So what I want to do in this um, brief paper and presentation is talk about theorizing um, book club history. So where does it fit into the different models that we have? Um, aptly, uh, obviously, this podcast is titled Darton Watch. So, of course, we'll talk about Darton as well, but also some other models. And that's um, the part that I'm going to go into now. As Leslie Hausen remarks, quote, scholarship in book history has been peculiarly resistant to theory, unquote. The German book historian Ursula Rautenberg would tend to agree. Um, and she does in her Reklamsachlexikon des Buches when she's talking about Buchwissenschaft, book studies as a discipline. But what does this mean for the analysis of book clubs within book history? Which theoretical underpinnings and models can we build on to reach a wider understanding of the workings and impact of book clubs within the 20th century book industry, within 20th century book culture, and as an element of 20th century social history more generally? Hausam adds elsewhere that, quote, no model has yet been introduced that can explain everything we need to know about the book in social, economic, and cultural context, unquote. Again, this brief podcast aims to discuss and interweave different theoretical underpinnings suited to book club research. In my research, I con consider books to be part and parcel, pun intended, of what Ted Streifus calls everyday book culture. Streifus defines book culture as the meanings, values, practices, artifacts, and ways of life associated with books, and he emphasizes that when he's looking at book culture, he's interested in legal codes, technical devices, institutional arrangements, social relations, and historical processes whose purpose is to help secure book culture. 
So building on Streifus's understanding of book culture, we can consider mail-order book culture to be the meanings, values, practices, and artifacts associated with choosing to receive and buy new books by mail rather than visiting a bookstore or a library. And I chose to speak about mail-order book culture as opposed to, for example, book club um, culture, because there is that ambiguity between the terms book sales club and book club as in a discussion group. So mail-order book culture is kind of the term I use going forward. Regarding the value of book clubs, there are different lines of inquiry that have been prevalent over the past decades. Most importantly, however, book clubs are and have been framed as institutions of mass culture by literary and book historians, as discussed in detail by Joan Shelley Rubin in her book, The Making of Middlebrow Culture, and of course, famously um, by Janice Radway in her book, A Feeling for Books the, um, Middlebrow Read on Middlebrow Reading. Contemporary cultural critics use the term middlebrow to express their disdain of upstart readers and reading practices exemplified by book club members. As Nicola Wilson, a reading historian and expert for the British Book Society, which is an example of a British uh, book club, writes, the term refers, quote, both to a variety of genres and to its audience, and is, another quote, deliberately imprecise, but generally understood as a kind of writing or experience that is inclusive and pleasurable, but fundamentally inauthentic and conventional middle of the road, unquote. In a double spread in 1949, based on a Harper's article by Russell Lines, life characterized everyday taste from highbrow to lowbrow. And you might know this if you've held in your hands perspectives on American book history, um, the textbook, because it's in there. Um, in the category reading book club selections and mass circulating, circulation magazines, oh, sorry. In the category reading book club selections and mass circulation magazines corresponded to the lower middle brow. The term, though not uncontested, is still widespread and there is significant scholarly interest in the media formerly denounced as middle brow today. In the International Handbook of the Sociology of Art and Culture, book historian David Carter notes the importance of acknowledgement of the contentious history of the terms. He also shows how newer work has found some surprising parallels between the concept of the middlebrow and Pierre Bourdieu's work. Book historians in general and uh, sharp conferences are a testament to this. Book historians have recently relied more heavily on sociologist Pierre Bourdieu's work to better understand the industry and the relationships between the actors in what Bourdieu calls the literary field or the field of cultural production. Bourdieu's terminology and theories can help ask questions of legitimization of book clubs and their role in selecting and thus arguably consecrating literature for their members, i.e. certain groups of readers. In her work on the Afrikaans book club, the Bourgalieskring, um, which was established in 1918 and discontinued in 1925, um, Jana Klingberg also draws on Pierre Bourdieu's theories. Klingberg positions the Afrikaans book club in the South African field of cultural production, implementing Bourdieu's theory of capital to better understand the cultural impact, so the cultural capital, and the commercial pressures, the financial capital, that determine the role of the book club within the South African literary field. So while Pierre Bourdieu's theories lend themselves very well to analyzing book clubs, I wanted to take a step back first and kind of ask where do book clubs fit into the models that we have um, in book history? And of course, um, 
One of those models is Robert Darton's communication circuit. Book clubs as a specific entity are all but missing from the models we rely on in the first instance as book historians. Robert Darton's observations take their starting point in examples from the 18th century, meaning an inclusion of the 20th century book club model would have been more than anachronistic. He could have included subscription, though, um, which was established in the 18th century, and he does not, though he does include clubs as an option for readers, giving early literary circles and societies a nod. In general, however, the one-way circuitry of the model does not allow for direct sales methods because they would have to cross through the middle of the circuit and connect, for example, publisher and reader as buyer directly. While Adams and Barker omit book clubs in their model, the omission goes hand-in-hand hand with a more general focus on structures and less on actors and institutions. In their model, book clubs could be categorized as belonging to either publication, manufacture, or distribution, depending on where the focus lies, since the structures and models can fulfill any of these three category briefs. We can assume that the two bibliographers would agree, since they understood their reaction to Darton's model as a way to map relationships between organizations and processes, rather than static positions of actors in a circuit. Finally, the late 20th century print publishing communication circuit developed by Padmini Ray-Marie and Claire Squires also omits book clubs, though they could have possibly been included in their category wholesalers and distributors. In contrast, Ray-Marie and Squires name subscriber as a possible role for 21st century readers in their digital publishing communication circuit. So really, we have a level playing field we can start wherever we want if we're trying to theorize book club history. Recent discussions by German scholars have considered the potential of systems theory for book historical work, especially for the history of publishing. Axel Kuhn's suggestions, for example, for a historiography of publishing using a systems theoretical perspective is applicable to book publisher clubs as well. In essence, his approach argues for an integrative view of publishers within the social system of mass media relating to other systems, politics, economics, art, and academia, depending on the types of books published. Considering the wide breadth of specialized book clubs for different demographic groups and or for fans of any genre, this seems relative, relevant um, to book club history as well. Kuhn's emphasis on internal decisions of publishers, economic versus aesthetic or artistic, and his call to widen the focus from prosopography to other issues are equally applicable to book club history. So if you think about examples like the left book club or the right book club, then you've got the system of politics in there. Um, in America, there was also the um, executive book club, which brings you into the system of economics. And um, then for art and academia, of course, there's other crossovers as well. Um, if you're looking at the different kinds of authors who are active, if you're looking at book design, if you're looking at textbooks. In Germany, for example, for academia, there's the Wissenschaftliche Buchgesellschaft, which is a very academically oriented um, membership-based book club. So systems theory, I would argue, um, can lend itself to book club historical research. Then we also have a new model proposed by Sidney Shep, which is based on the approach of Histoire Croisie, and it's robust, I think, but also flexible. It may be relevant to book club history in that it argues for an abstraction from national book historical inquiry and can underpin research on book clubs within what Shep calls the event horizon. Book club research can profit from comparative studies into 
the biography of the book, which Shep situates between prosopography and bibliography, and the placeography of certain book club models. And these are spaces and places, to echo Shep's terms, that are interconnected closely for the entire 20th century. So questions of placeography would also include kind of fixed book prices. Um, for example, right? Are we in Britain and in Germany where we have fixed book prices or in America where we don't? And how does that relate to kind of the book club structures and also the book club benefits? In my mini graph, um, I'm able to show that industry experts were well-informed and feuilleton journalists actively reported and compared activities in other national markets. So there were articles, for example, in the New York Times um, titled Spain now has its book club, right? So this expectation that you're knowing about what's going on in other places. Um, and the similarities between these book club structures and histories across continents are striking. To a certain extent, I think that Shep's model permits us to grasp and contextualize these as situated knowledge. I would argue that for a deeper understanding of a distribution channel, we need to add economic history to the zone of investigation produced by prosopography, placeography, and bibliography. So she's got three bubbles. I would argue that we need, for book club history, we need four bubbles. So prosopography, placeography, bibliography, and economic history. And um, for book club history, I really think we need to consider prosopography in a wider way, looking beyond the author and including agents, editors, judges, book club managers, and conglomerate CEOs, and other decision makers. Um, because especially as we move along throughout the 20th century, the book clubs are embedded so closely and so importantly within um, corporate and conglomerate structures. And actually, Shep's model is the one that I move forward with um, in the mini graph, um, book clubs and book commerce. But we also have another model um, for book industry research, which was um, suggested by Simone Murray, who has um, in her um, in her diagram kind of a matrix of the digital literary sphere. And what it does and what it offers is comparison between yesterday's and today's book industry, right? So her matrix diagram captures what she says is English language literary culture at a key period of transition when the influence of the old ways perceptibly remains, but the logics of the new digital environment have wrought such changes that the digital can no longer be regarded as a mere supplement to inherited print culture structure, unquote. And so it's interesting because we see that book clubs that are still active today engage in um, all the types of processes and activities that Murray identifies for traditional literary institutions and organizations. So we have a lot of overlap still between kind of the book club structures that we see today and the book club structures that we saw about 100 years ago. Um, so the Book of the Month Club, for instance, was founded in 1926. So we're edging on 100 years of book club history. So I think what we've seen with these different models that we've had, so um, kind of we looked at Darton, Adams Barker, um, Squires and Ray Murray, um, we looked at Shep, we looked at Murray. I think what you can see is that, oh, and systems theory, but we 
we saw that different layers of theory and different models can be applied to book clubs to more fully understand the role that they have played within the book industry and in society, contributing to an increase in readership and book ownership. Um, in the mini graph, I then go on kind of to offer a historical narrative of book clubs, highlighting patterns and principles within the long 20th century in accordance with Alistair McCleary's recent challenge to book historians to move away from ideographic towards nomothetic analysis. Throughout book club history, as in publishing history more generally, there are, quoting McCleary here, earlier patterns that have been faced by change but nevertheless can be discerned through the intervening layers of business and cultural practice, unquote. McCleary uses the metaphor of palimpsest to describe exactly these traces. So as I was working with the different models and the different theories that we have on hand for book history, um, I saw that a lot of it was relevant to um, book club history, but I was also not entirely happy with the way we could frame membership in a book club as a form of, um, you know, buying books, but also engaging in book culture. And um, as I was working on the sources, I saw kind of four elements that resurfaced regularly reasons and benefits, um, reasons for membership and benefits of membership. Um, and I called this the four C's of book clubs, curation, convenience, concession, and community. Uh, and if we look at subscriptions, so if we take a back, step back and looking at what are subscriptions actually, um, there's access subscriptions, think of your own subscriptions, such as Spotify and Netflix. There's replenishment subscriptions, for instance, for dog food, coffee, or hygiene products. And then for our context here, of course, what's important is curation subscriptions. So there's that first C. In his book, Curation, Michael Bashkar writes, in a world of too much, selecting, finding, and cutting down is valuable. In the content, context of excess, curation isn't just a buzzword. It makes sense of the world. So curation of books in a book club as a selection of um, reading material for a specific demographic or for an individual. And of course, we've got, you know, 100 years of book club history, but even in the 20s, um, you know, we have an overwhelming amount of books that are being published. There's a huge growth in book publications from the 1880s until um, the 1920s, and people really need direction in the book industry. So that's where the curation comes in. Michael Bashkar also says that the roots of information overload run deep, right? It's not a 21st century um, phenomenon. So while the word curation may seem anachronistic when used to describe the club membership benefits for early 20th century readers, it is accurate at second glance. And in addition to curation, there's actually a kind of a special form of curation that happens in the mid 20th century with book clubs such as the Reader's Digest Condensed Editions Book Club. Um, so as a further kind of service, as a further curational service, Reader's Digest Condensed Editions Book Club abbreviates, abridges, condenses um, books and bundles four of them, usually four, together into one volume for readers, making it very, you know, packaged and curated content. So you could also call that a fifth C, but since it's a very specific form of curation, I think it falls under curation. Then we have convenience and concession, and I think those two Cs are pretty much self-explanatory. So 
Of course, for convenience in capitalist systems, consumers covet the best quality product at the lowest possible price and with the lowest possible effort. And, um, you know, inventions and developments have been driven by the search for more convenient, cheaper solutions without or with the lowest possible compromise in quality. So having a book delivered to your doorstep, um, being able to order books from the comfort of your own home, um, all of those are very convenient processes. And especially if you don't have um, excellent bookstore infrastructure, so if you live in a larger country or in the countryside, um, then that's a very important kind of factor. It's inconvenient to buy books through other methods, and that's why it's so um, attractive to be a book club member. So that's convenience. And then um, the third point, concession, is actually in there as well, right? So we're trying to pay as low a price as possible. And through our membership and subscription models, the book prices are lower than um, they would be in a department store or in a bookstore. And especially in markets with book fixed book prices, so like in the UK or in Germany, um, you have to have membership in a book club to get that reduced price, right? Because you won't get the reduced rate um, in the 20th century uh, at the bookstore, right? So that's convenience and concession. And then the fourth community, um, fourth C community, is a member benefit that clubs have implemented and communicated differently over the past 100 years. But what they all have in common, I think, is the sense of belonging to a movement or belonging to a certain group of readers, of self-identifying through club membership, um, maybe also aspirational identification, right? Who do I want to be through this membership? Think about, um, I said, the executive book club, right? Um, if I'm a member in the executive book club, that can also be aspirational. Um, especially they had a lot of nonfiction titles. So that's a good example there. So to wrap this up, I started with cartoons and I will end with one. And there are literally dozens to choose from, at least in the United States, cartoons joking about book clubs are constant um, if you're looking at book club history. And actually just this week, the New Yorker published yet another. Um, this was about kind of a book discussion group um, with dogs sharing books in their canine book club. So this is in the November 9th edition. Um, Garfield, Ziggy, Peanuts, Marmaduke, classic and favorite cartoon characters have debated the merits and pitfalls of monthly subscription services. The large selection of these cartoons dealing with book clubs, in particular with the brand Book of the Month, I think underlines how firmly subscription models are embedded in the cultural memory of readers. So the cartoon that I want to end with is a woman sitting on the couch next to her partner and her apartment is overflowing with books. The books have reached couch level. They cover her knees. Her partner's head is covered by a book while he drinks coffee. And she says, I never noticed how quickly time passes until I joined a book of the month club. She's reading. She seems unfazed by the avalanche of books surrounding her that come in every month. Um, and why is this a good choice for a closing cartoon, I think? I think it visualizes, in a tongue-in-cheek way, 
the millions of books that reached readers through mail order distribution. So this whole idea of percentage-wise, we're looking at such a big part of 20th century book sales that were sold through the mails. Um, and that's why I think it's really important that we keep an eye on this phenomenon of book club history. So in closing, book clubs and book commerce are linked inextricably. Our book industry today was shaped by and through activities by book clubs um, and by the people, places, and things that Sydney Shep describes in her model. The people who contribute to book club history are authors, but more centrally, they are also book club founders and innovators, judges, editors, and managers. The places that define book club history can be better described as nodes in a global network forged through immigration and immigration at the beginning of the 20th century, but also by mergers across and beyond national boundaries, channels, and oceans. And finally, the things that shape book club history are the book club editions themselves and their paratexts. So the magazines, the brochures, the advertisements. Millions of books reached millions of readers as book club editions. These editions, though rather uninteresting to collectors today, were objects of desire, of identification, and pride. Millions of pages of colorful, highly readable book-related content entered households through the mail. Mail order book culture at its most effective. Throughout my mini-graph, I argue that a global perspective is necessary to understand the cultural and economic impact of book clubs as a distribution channel in the 20th and into the 21st century. I also show how the central reasons for membership in clubs can be condensed into these four succinct categories, convenience, community, concession, and most importantly, curation. Within McCleary's metaphor, these similarities across national boundaries and the decades are the traces in the palimpsest, still visible today in conglomerate structures and a handful of resilient book clubs, but also resurfacing in new innovative ways. So for example, the Book of the Month Club, established in 1926, is now an online-only book box subscription called Book of the Month, and it's quite successful. We have our work cut out for us. There's a lot of work to be done to update and internationalize um, the existing research on book clubs, but we can work together to compare and contrast book clubs across national contexts to understand how book clubs contributed to the flow of translation or the proliferation of mass culture in the international realm. And when we declutter our shelves and stumble upon old book club editions, we can rediscover books that were enormously popular in the 20th century, but have been all but erased from the canon today. As Amaranth Borsa concludes in her treatise on the book, quote, while reading on digital devices is not going away, one technology clearly does not supersede the other. Similarly, I would argue, one distribution channel does not supersede the other. Mail order book culture still has a place in the 21st century, almost 100 years after its original boom um, in the 1920s. I will be watching closely, and I encourage anyone else who is working on mail order book culture to be in touch. I'd love to hear from you. Finally, thanks again to Millie Weber for hosting Dart and Watch and giving us, and me, this platform. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>